Please be seated. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 45. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are looking at uh, four psalms over uh, the Advent season that are uh, traditional Christmas Day psalms. Uh, they may not seem uh, particularly Christmassy to us, but really they're all psalms focused on Jesus, which is, you know, what, what, uh, what more Christmassy thing can there be, right? They're focused on Jesus, particularly Jesus as the King who comes. So uh, this morning we will look at Psalm 45, and before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we long to see Jesus. We long to see Jesus in all of his glory. We long to know him better. We long to uh, rest in him more fully. We long to draw closer to him as our Lord and our King, but also as our bridegroom. Our Father, we pray that you would show us Jesus this morning, that you would open our eyes and hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would see him and know him and believe in him and rest in him and delight in him, even today. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would do that work by your Spirit in our hearts, that you would be glorified in us and then through us in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mesquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your Thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever.
Well, Paul McCartney released a song in 1976 called Silly Love Songs. And it was written as a response to people who had criticized McCartney for writing, well, too many silly love songs. And the song begins with McCartney reflecting on the fact that people cannot get enough of silly love songs. And really all you have to do is look at, at pop music history to see that that is true. I'm sure you can think of a few silly love songs yourself. Well, the first love song is found in Genesis chapter two. God creates woman and brings her to the man. And this is his response in Genesis two twenty three. He says uh, that uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You'll note that in your English Bible, it's set in verse form as in a poem or even a song. Love songs seem to be written into our souls. There is a reason for that, of course. It's a, a theological reason. We were made for love. We were made for intimacy. We were made for connection, both with one another and ultimately with God. And Psalm 45 is a love song. It, it says it right there in the title. And, and yet a few things need to be said before we dive in, because Psalm 45 is not only a love song, but it seems to be a wedding song. Now, in the ancient world, they knew how to throw a wedding. They knew how to party. Wedding celebrations lasted for days, sometimes a week or even two. The wedding at Cana, for example, where Jesus performed his first public miracle was probably a multi-day affair. Remember, uh, back then they didn't have TikTok or Disney Plus or Nintendo Switch, right? So when they threw a party, they were all in. There was a variation, of course, but, but it was something like this. Well, well, first, of course, there was the betrothal. Uh, that's much more formal than today's engagements. It would happen months, even years before the wedding day. And in place of the traditional engagement ring, at least two places in Scripture suggest uh, nose rings were given. Now, I've tried to convince Deborah that she should get a nose ring as a sign of her commitment to me. Uh, but she has up to this point resolutely refused. But then uh, when the wedding week came, uh, there were multiple days of preparation. When, when the day came, there were the morning's preparations. A bride and groom both had to get themselves ready. Even just sticking to, to biblical descriptions of wedding clothes, they're pretty elaborate. Isaiah 61.10, the groom uh, is said to wear a beautiful headdress. The bride wore jewels. It seems from Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 11, and Ezekiel 16, 12, at times both bride and groom would wear a crown. Uh, they were king and queen for the day, as it were. In Genesis 24, 65, Rebekah wears a bridal veil. Both bride and groom are clothed in their best attire. Our psalm in verses 13 and 14 talks about robes interwoven with gold and beautifully colored. Now the hour draws near. There's a wedding procession. Afternoon or early evening comes, and the groom and his groomsmen, all decked out, parade to the house of the bride, picking up members of the wedding party along the way. Remember the, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins? 
Well, eventually the, the groom gets to the bride's house. He picks her up and takes her back to his family home. Verse 15 of our text talks about that. The wedding procession involved literally singing and dancing in the streets as they went. Once back at the groom's home, there was some kind of an exchange of covenant vows, as mentioned in Ezekiel 16 and Malachi chapter 2, together with the well wishes of the guests, as we see in Ruth chapter 4, wishes especially for the blessing of the marriage's fruitfulness. That was followed by the wedding feast, what we would call the wedding reception. It was a huge party, right? There were tons of preparations, as we see in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Uh, to refuse the invite was an insult, Matthew 22, 7. The, the party was large enough to run out of wine, as happened in Cana in John chapter 2, verse 3. Even the guests dressed up, as we see in Matthew 22, 11. The wedding feast was followed, of course, by the wedding night the consummation of the marriage. You see that with Isaac and Rebecca and also with Jacob and, well, Leah. But that wasn't the end, right? Next followed a week or two of festivities to celebrate the joining of man and wife. The festivities did not really begin until the consummation was complete. Like I said, they, they knew how to party. It, it was, and, and it's against this backdrop of the, the ancient wedding celebrations that we must understand Psalm 45. It's the description of the wedding procession, right? First, we see the, the king getting ready in his home, then his bride concluding with the blessing of the couple. And as we come to Psalm 45, I want us to see, of course, that this psalm is not just about some ancient wedding ceremony. It's about us. It is a call to us. And so our three points are an exhortation, uh, delight yourself in the Lord, commit yourself to the Lord, and honor the legacy of the Lord. First, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, now our poet begins addressing the king. Uh, the psalm is written by the sons of Korah, who are the official Levitical choir, uh, part of the tribe of Levi, who were called to oversee music in the temple. And they write, or better, sing to the king, verse 1. Right away, though, that, that brings up a question. Who is this king? This psalm was likely written for a royal wedding. So whose wedding? And it's a fair question, but one that we cannot answer. We just don't have enough information from the psalm. And because of that, some detractors of scripture point out the inconsistency of this with the final verse, verse 17, which says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. If we don't know the king's name, then his name has not been remembered. Well, that brings up actually two important points about this psalm. The first is the psalm is poetry. It's a love song. And we need to read it as a love song. It's, it's not history per se, or even despite what I'm about to say, prophecy. It, it is a love poem. So when the writer seems to suggest that God blesses this king because he is handsome, remember, it's a love song. Of course, you're going to point out the beauty of the two lovers. But second, while the Psalms, and while this psalm is not quite prophecy, uh, the Psalms are prophetic, uh, meaning they are forward-looking. Uh, that is in part due to what Bible scholars call typology, uh, where something in one part of the Bible is a type or an example, uh, a foreshadow of something to be found later on. 
Kings in the old covenant were types of Christ. He is the great king who fulfills what all the kings were meant to be. And that is more clearly true here than almost anywhere. Uh, Verse 6 says of this king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The king is called O God. Now, some scholars try to explain this away. Uh, The problem is, uh, in, in the ancient virgin, uh, versions like the Greek Septuagint took this literally. So in the ancient world, uh, the, the Hebrew was understood to mean exactly what it says, uh, an address to the king as God. Hebrews chapter 1 takes it the same way. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 quotes Psalm 45 pretty much word for word. So the king in the middle of this psalm is called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now, this king is clearly a man. Uh, Verse 2 says he's the most handsome of the sons of men. And he is called God. Now, of no one could this be truly said except for Jesus. Jesus is God become man. Come to be our king. Come to be our bridegroom. That is what we remember and celebrate during the time of Advent the coming of King Jesus. And so as we approach this psalm, yes, it it was written for an earthly king, a son of David, whom we do not know. But it points us to the king of kings, the one who is David's son and David's Lord, Jesus Christ. Of him, Paul says, we, the church, have been betrothed to one husband to be presented as a pure virgin to Christ. And so we approach this human king considering how he points us forward to the king of kings. And I want you to notice six things about this great king. Although I think it's five. So we'll say five things about this great king. First is the king's person. We're told in verse two that he is the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, uh, Dr. Boyce Uh, a a preacher uh, from Philadelphia from a few years back, right, is quick to say that it would be a mistake to limit this phrase to mere physical attractiveness. And I appreciate his point. 1 Samuel 16, 7 uh, says, for the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isaiah 50, 3 verse 2 prophesies of Jesus, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, this is a love song. And Isaiah 53 is not the end of the story. When Jesus was born into a poor Jewish family, he had no form or majesty. But he does now. Listen to this description from Revelation chapter 1. John, the apostle John, sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, that's quite the description, right? it's, It's not meant to be taken literally, of course, 
but the ideas of majesty and glory are certainly there. And if we were to get but a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus, our knees would weaken, our heart would pound, and we could do nothing but fall on the ground as though dead. I don't want to trivialize the beauty and glory of Jesus, but when our writer says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, it is the epitome of understatement. Second, notice the king's speech. You know, people in charge are at times harsh, cruel, short, commanding, unkind, right? They have the power and they know it. They're in charge, they should be listened to. But that was not the way of King Jesus. Verse two goes on, grace is poured upon your lips. And just read through the gospels, right? Notice the grace of Jesus as he interacts with broken people. Jesus said things like in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On at least two occasions, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Once to a paralytic man and once to a known adulterous woman. He said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And a few verses later, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He said to Martha of her brother, Lazarus, your brother will rise again. And then a few verses later, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He said to the disciples, I have called you friends. He said of his executioners, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Truly, no one ever spoke like this man doesn't matter, right, how broken you are, how much sin and shame and guilt you have. It doesn't matter how different you are from someone else in the room. Jesus is ready to speak gracious words to sinners who come to him. So notice the king's person. He's glorious. Notice the king's speech. It's gracious. Third, notice the king's victory. Verses three to five catalog the king's military powers. He is victorious. His arrows are true. His enemies fall before him. But he's not malicious, not bloodthirsty, right? Verse four says he rides out for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He fights because he has to. He fights for truth. He fights for the meek. He fights for what is right. He's not settling a personal score. He's not trying to boost his ego. He wants to put the world right. He wants to defend the weak. He wants a world without lies and spin and deception. Jesus fights simply for truth and meekness and righteousness. Now, of course, the way Jesus fights is counterintuitive. He wages war first at the cross. He comes to defeat his enemies, but does so by being seemingly defeated by them. His enemies arrest him and accuse him and convict him and crucify him. They seem to be controlling the narrative. He was a, a subversive, a, a pretender. He deserves to die. But it was there that Jesus fought for what is true and humble and right. Not by denying his sin or hiding his sin or justifying his sin the way so many leaders do. Jesus had no sin. No, Jesus fought by bearing our sins and embracing the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that we deserve. And then Jesus rose. 
right? Demonstrating the father's acceptance of the son that we might find acceptance in him. See, the resurrection is his victory and our victory in him. And so notice the king's person, he's glorious. Notice his speech, it's gracious. Notice the king's victory, resurrection life. Fourth, notice the king's justice, verses six and seven. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You know, the the corrupt, self-serving politician is a trope, right? It, It is so common in life, or at least in our imaginations, that we often assume it. Right? Power corrupts, after all, and, and it often does, but, but there have been good kings in history, and, and there are good politicians even today, but none have been so good as King Jesus. Right? Verse 6 says, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, which means he rules not with anger, not with propaganda, not with self-interest, but with uprightness. Right? Jesus sits on the throne, even now, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. He is the final judge, according to Scripture. Whatever justice or injustice you may experience in this life, Jesus will return. And his justice will have the final word. He will put down all oppressors. He will make all things right. He will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Now, that would ultimately be unbearable if it weren't for his gracious words. But forgiveness is possible now. Mercy is offered now, but justice is coming, which is both a gracious promise and a terrible threat. So notice the king's person, glorious. Notice the king's speech, gracious. Notice the king's victory, resurrection life. Notice the king's justice, true. Fifth, and finally, notice the king's riches. Verses eight and nine describe the riches of an earthly king. Lavish perfumes, expensive building materials, the luxury of musical instruments, daughters of kings in his court. At his right hand, the queen decked out in gold, probably the queen mother since the bride has yet to be introduced. But the point is everywhere you look, there are riches, the smell, the sight, the sound of prosperity in the king's house. Now it's true Again, Jesus was born poor. But of course, his is the ultimate rags to riches story. He was born poor and died a criminal, but he was raised, declared right by the court of heaven and entered into his glory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which means the whole earth is his. Everything belongs to him. As God says in Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Micah 4.13 says the wealth of the whole earth will be devoted to him. Revelation 21 says the kings of the earth will bring the glory and honor of the nations into the new Jerusalem for the wedding feast. Everything belongs to King Jesus. The king's person is glorious. The king's speech is gracious. The king's victory, resurrection. The king's justice is true. The king's riches, the whole earth belongs to him. And so what is the proper response? The proper response is delight yourself in the Lord. This is a a love song. The point is fall in love with Jesus. The whole Bible paints us a picture of our glorious and gracious king. Delight yourself in the Lord. 
Now, of course, in Psalm 45, all of this just sets the scene, the scene for the wedding feast. That the king is ready, looking glorious, sounding glorious. His victory is won. His justice is true. His palace is decorated and everyone is dressed for the festivities. So we turn to the bride. Two, commit yourself to the Lord. The bride is getting ready. She's in her father's house, that, the house she grew up in, all she's ever known. She's getting nervous. And someone is there ready to give advice. Verse 10 says, hear, O daughter. Maybe it's her mother, right, given the address, trying to calm her daughter's fears and excite her hopes. She gives her three pieces of advice. First is cut ties with the past. You know, marriages can often be difficult. And one of the difficulties is the relationship each person still has to their parents. Now, personally, I hit the in-law jackpot, right? We, we lived with my in-laws for a year and it was amazing, but not everyone is so lucky. Sometimes one's ties to the past get in the way of their living in the present. And so this wise mother says to her daughter, forget your people and your father's house. You're starting a new chapter. You can't hold on to the past. You can't live in the past. You aren't in our house anymore. Things aren't going to be the same. Get ready for this new phase of life. Now, again, this is especially true in our relationship to Jesus. When, when God calls Abraham out of Ur, he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Cut ties with the past so that you can follow me in the present. And Jesus, when he calls us to himself, calls us to make the same wholehearted commitment and whole soul break with our past. In Luke 14, 26, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The point is nothing must hold us back, right? The, the marriage relationship is a picture, a picture of something greater. The commitment between two people is a picture of covenant union between God and his people. It is wholehearted, whole person, whole soul commitment. So what are you holding on to, right? What, what, what from your past has its hold on you? Forget your people in your father's house. Second, anticipate what is to come. The mother tells her daughter, think of what it will be like to be the bride of the king. Verse 11, the king, the king will desire your beauty. Verse 12, the people of Tyre, one of the wealthiest wealthiest trade nations of the ancient world will seek your favor with gifts. You will be in a position of, of privilege few have ever experienced. Now, I realize that, that privilege is a dirty word nowadays, and we might want to qualify it. She must use it for good. She must not take advantage of those under her. She must seek to raise others up as well. And, and okay, that's good, right? Remember, though, that she is marrying a just king, not a corrupt politician, right? This is a good thing. And again, the point for us is to highlight the privilege of belonging to Christ. Our bridegroom is the king of heaven and earth. We will rise with him. We will live with him. He offers for us to reign with him. Keep your eye on what is ahead. The truth is we are not yet wedded to Jesus, only betrothed to him. Yes, it is a real binding communion, but it is not real binding communion in its fullness. The marriage supper of the lamb is in the future. We wait for our bridegroom to come and take us home. 
So anticipate the future. Keep your eye on the future. Remember what is to come. Cut ties with the past. Anticipate what is to come. And third, seek to please him in the present. I, I want you to notice, right, that the both bridegroom and bride here are beautiful, right? The groom is the most handsome of men. He will be delightful to his bride. She is to forget her past and commit herself to her king, and so her lord, but also her husband. Uh, this woman is, is in a unique position, right? Most people are not married to the king. So verse 11, since he is your lord, bow to him, is not meant to be generalized. Husbands out there, don't misunderstand. And in verses 13 and 14, her wedding clothes are described. She, is, she like her king, is glorious. And again, we might ask, how important are appearances? Does God really care what we look like? Is, is this saying we must dress up for Jesus? Well, don't misunderstand, right? We, we are to seek to be beautiful to Jesus. We want him to desire our beauty, to delight in us. But it's not the beauty of outward adornment. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Right? The outer here is a picture of the inner. The bride's beauty, and it is, it is good and honest and wholesome to want to be a delight to your spouse, right? Part of love is delight. But her beauty points to something deeper, the imperishable beauty of the heart. That's what Paul is talking about when he says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ wants to make the church beautiful. We may be a long way off, but he's not done with us yet. Christ wants to make you beautiful and he's not done with you yet. When he is done, he will present us to himself on that wedding day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We will be holy. This is not talking about appearing a certain way. This is talking about us being holy and righteous and upright and dedicated to our God. Commit yourself to the Lord, right? Cut ties with the past, anticipate what is to come, and seek to please him in the present. And as you do, you will be a delight to him, such that on that last day when the marriage supper has come, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I realize I'm mixing metaphors there, but you get the point, right? Jesus delights in his bride. He delights in our obedience, our faltering baby steps of obedience. And he himself is working that in us. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You will be glorious. The king will delight in your beauty. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord and honor the legacy of the Lord. You see, ultimately, it's not about you. Uh, we want our story to be about us, and it makes sense, I guess, but our story is not about us. It's about him. And after the groom is ready, he, he goes to get his bride, and she is ready. And verse 15 tells us, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. 
led along to the palace of the king. Now they are together, joined together in covenant bond, and they receive the blessing of the poet. This is similar to the blessing that Rebecca received when her family sent her off to marry Isaac in Genesis 24, or like the blessing that Ruth and Boaz received when they are joined together in Ruth chapter 4. And these blessings focus on two things, children and reputation. First, verse 16, in the place of your father's shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Now, it would make sense for us to read uh, this as spoken to the bride. She, after all, is the one who has been exhorted to leave her father's house. But the pronouns here in verse 16 are masculine. This is spoken to the king. The blessing for the king is sons. Now, for ancient kings, that was, of course, a political and military advantage. He could station his sons throughout his kingdom. They would further his rule in the world. They would help establish it wherever they went. Fathers have sons who bear their likeness out into the world. And that is why Jesus came, to father sons, as it were. Hebrews 2.10 says, he brought many sons to glory. And Hebrews 2.13 says, behold, I and the children God has given me. Or to put it differently, right, to change the metaphor, Jesus came to restore us, male and female, to his image. And it is the union of Jesus to the church that produces such children remade in the image of God. As people come to understand the gospel and are restored to the image of Jesus. And then we, as those children, right, head out into the world as image of Jesus to live under his rule and manifest that rule in the way we live and serve and work and play. Are you living as his children, his image, representatives of his kingdom? Well, that's part one of, of Jesus' legacy, if you will. Sons and daughters in his image, manifesting his rule and authority in the world through humble submission to him. Part two of his legacy is the praise of nations. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Now, it is true that we don't know to whom this psalm was written. But we do know the name of Jesus. Paul says of that name in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is your life given to praise this name, the name of Jesus? That is the great end of all that Jesus has done that we would know him and enjoy him and delight in him as his bride, and that we would praise him as our God, our king, our bridegroom, our lover. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord and honor the legacy of the Lord as we await the coming of our bridegroom to come and take us to himself for the real party to begin. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would give us eyes for Jesus. Help us to delight in Jesus. Help us to long for Jesus. Help us to enjoy Jesus. Help us to know him. Help us to rejoice in him. Father, we pray that you would 
set our hearts on Jesus. Help us to walk with him in the present. Help us to long for his coming as our bridegroom to come and take us to his home. Where we will dwell with him forever. Where we will celebrate at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.